Good evening, church family. It's so good to be with you and worship together. Uh, thank you so much to Grant and the team. Um, when you sing songs like that, in that way, it makes you ready to preach. So good your loins. Thank you so much to Grant for leading us in that. If you have your Bibles, um, please turn me to Genesis chapter 43. Genesis chapter 43. Uh, as I said last week, the next three chapters, Genesis 42, 43, 44, we're on the road to reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. Uh, and in this, uh, last week we saw in Genesis 42 how God pricked the conscience of these brothers. And in this chapter we see how God continues to work on these brothers. And our prayer should be this evening that God would work on us. Genesis 43, uh, this is God's word, let's hear it. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless you, your brother, is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. For my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little a little bomb and a little honey, gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in, your, in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and rise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send, send back your brother, your other brother and Benjamin as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them. And Benjamin, they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with him, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house, and slaughter an animal, and make ready for the men, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the man to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks for the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. 
So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you, and do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought out Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkey's father, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that, he should, that they should eat there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of which you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and said, and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion, grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And when they sat before him, the firstborn, they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Only so far in the reading of God's word may reform our lives to its truth. I know we've already prayed, but let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we come this evening into this place with hearts filled with desires. Some we confess are good desires, necessary desires, desires that you'd protect us and provide for us, that you'd care for us, but also desires that at times are sinful and selfish. And so we even pray this evening as we come to your word, as we reflect upon this passage and this incident, these brothers and how you deal with them, we pray that you would deal with us that you would deal with our own desires, our own hearts, that even as we consider this, that you'd speak to my own hearts and my own sinful desires, that you'd rebuke me and us and that you draw us to yourself. You've told us to delight in you, our Lord, and you will grant us the desires of our hearts. And so we pray, dear Lord, help us to delight in you this evening so that the desires of our heart would be aligned with your heart so that we would live lives that please you and honor you and glorify you. We pray this not because we deserve it, Lord, we know it, we don't deserve it, 
but because you are good and gracious and blessed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, the 16th century English poet Edmund Spencer described it as riding upon a ravenous wolf. He described it as having cankered teeth that chew upon a venomous, venomous toad. He, he said and described it as having a leprous mouth from which it spews spiteful poison. He said that inwardly it chews upon itself, devouring itself until it becomes shriveled. He described it as wearing a, a colorful robe painted with eyes, yet hiding a hateful snake. Edmund Spencer does us a favor because he describes with vivid imagery the vile sin of envy. Envy, that's what he's talking about. Remember what envy is, the word envy is literally from the Latin that means to look at something with malicious intent. Sinfully gazing upon something, desiring it for yourself sinfully. I think of 1 Samuel 18 where we're told that when David received more praise, more honor, Saul eyed David from that day on. He eyed him with malicious intent. See, envy is that wolf-riding, leprous snake that desires what others have. Uh, someone has described it this way. Envy is the opposite of Romans 12, 15. We're told they rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, or the envious person does the opposite. He rejoices with those who weep, or he rejoices over those who weep. He, he, he weeps when they rejoice. See, the envious person, the one who has been bitten by this venomous snake, looks with malicious intent. Why? Because they're all about themselves. They're all about their own position, their own pride, their own pleasure. See, Edmund Spencer is right. Envy is clothed in a beautiful garment with eyes, but behind the glaring eyes isn't a loving heart. It's a hateful snake. And I think Spencer does us a favor because let's be honest, at times we overlook envy as a small sin. We see it as harmful and insignificant. It's so easy to have envious heart, envious thoughts in your heart, to, to harbor them and not even be aware of it. Uh, Joseph Epstein is a secular author, essayist, and he was asked to write on the seven deadly sins, and he made this observation about envy. He, he says that of all the seven deadly sins, so-called, envy is the dangerous, most dangerous. Well, because on the one hand, all the other sins include some elements, some degree of envy, whether it's gluttony or pride or lust. But on the other hand, envy of all of those seemed most innocent. Malice, that is, that cannot speak its name, cold-blooded, but secret hostility, hidden rancor and spite, Epstein said, all cluster at the center of envy. Surely we can understand that as Christians. 
If you think about all the lists of sins that the Scriptures record for us, envy seems quite insignificant. I consider Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. See, when compared to sexual immorality and idolatry and sorcery, when compared to fits of anger and drunkenness and orgies, Envy seems a little bit mediocre. It seems a bit pedestrian. It doesn't seem that bad, and that's why it's dangerous. It lies hidden. It might seem small, but still big enough to damn our souls. Because Paul carries on and says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yes, envy is covered in a beautiful gown, yet hidden within its fold is a hateful snake that chews on deadly poison. And guess what? You don't have to go far in the Bible to see the effects that this snake has. In fact, it starts right in the beginning with another snake. In Genesis 3, we find Eve looking with delight upon the tree of good and evil. And we're told that she saw it, she desired it, and took what was not hers to take. Many have pointed out Eve was guilty there of of covetousness. Now I know covetousness and envy and jealousy are are not exactly the same. But I suggest to you these are three kissing cousins. They're from the same incestuous family. They're all sins of desires, sinful, selfish desires. And so just as Eve looked with delight and desire upon that fruit, so envy looks with delight and desire upon that which isn't theirs, which belongs to another. And we see these three kissing cousins wreaking havoc in Genesis. Genesis 4. We find Cain depressed. Why? Because he's envious. He covets the favor that Abel receives from God. And the result is he murders his brother. Genesis 16. These cousins meet again with Hagar and Sarah. On the one hand, Hagar shows generous content for Sarah, the loved wife of Abraham, On the other hand, Sarah, with envious resentment, treats Hagar harshly. Genesis 21, jealously, we see jealousy meet Ishmael as he scorns and mocks Isaac, leading again to rivalry. Genesis 27, Rebecca, with sinful jealousy for Jacob, lies, cheats, and steals Esau's birthright. And although Jacob wasn't the one who came up with the idea, he was an accomplice in envy. Even Genesis 30, we find the brooding rivalry between Jacob's wives. Rachel and Leah, once loving sisters, have their relationship ruined by these kissing cousins. When God blesses Leah with children, we're told explicitly that Rachel envied her. 
leading to contempt and jealousy and resentment. And that envy just passes on to the children. Because in Genesis 37, we see the rotten eggs of envy come to hatch in the brothers of Joseph. They envy Joseph because of their fa- he's their father's favorite. They covet their father's love over him. They're jealous of him. Genesis 37, 11 says, and the result is they sell him into slavery. Did you get the point? Throughout Genesis, in fact, throughout the Bible, envy is a serious sin with serious consequences. James 3.16 says this, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Proverbs 14.30, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Or Proverbs 27.4, Wrath is a cruel, wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? It's more ferocious, more angry than anger and wrath. See, that's what we see in Jacob's family. A family shattered with deception and envy and jealousy. We see the rot, we see resentment, we see vileness, we see wickedness in this family. And in light of all of that, we come to our passages. I'm talking about Genesis 43. We come to our passage and envy is missing. The kissing cousins are nowhere to be found. Uh, We see in this chapter that these brothers aren't allured here. There's no covetous desires that embitter their heart. There's no envious resentment that that ruins the relationship. There's no jealous rivalry that, that leads to evil practice. And realize that's the point that Joseph's second test is all about. Joseph wants to see whether or not his brothers are still enslaved to their envy. At the end of the chapter, as the brothers sit in Joseph's house, Joseph purposely gives Benjamin five times the portion of food, and Joseph wants to know how they respond. He knows Benjamin's the favorite, and so he's waiting to see, will they treat him with contempt? Will they resent their younger brother? Will they conspire and grumble and complain and criticize like they did before? And to Joseph's delight and to our surprise, the envy is gone. The jealousy seems to be no more. Coveting seems to be cured. And the question for us this evening is, how does that happen? How, does envious bro- how do envious brothers turn to, to, to brothers who actually love and rejoice and delight in one another? How are these brothers cured of this rot of envy? Well, on the one hand, we could say from last week that they were brought to an end of themselves, right? They've seen their sin. Their guilty consciences have been awakened to their sin. But on the other hand, we need to see that they encounter the living God in this chapter. They encounter the God who is bountiful and blessed. In this chapter, the brothers engage three individuals. You see, firstly, they engage Jacob in verse 1 to 14. Secondly, they engage Jacob's steward, verse 15 to 25. And then they engage Joseph himself uh, in verse 26 and 34. 
And what's important to see that in each engagement, each person they deal with, each one of them communicates a benediction. Each individual announces a benediction, a blessing characterized or founded in the character of God. And in this chapter, these brothers will not only hear these truths about God, they'll not only hear these benedictions, but they will see these benedictions come about. They'll see these truths worked out before their very eyes by God's providence. And so this evening, as a means to, to overcome envy in our own hearts, let's look how these brothers engage and see God. The first thing I want you to see is that they come to hear of the God of all might. The God of all might. In verse 1 to 14, we find the famine continues to be severe. Jacob's house is again in dire need. And now Jacob, who previously refused to send Benjamin, is forced to change his mind. And after Judah pleads with his father and pledges himself to protect Benjamin, Jacob agrees to send his youngest son to Egypt. I'm not going to deal with Judah this evening, that's next week. But suffice to say, it's through Judah's intercession here, uh, intervention, that Jacob sends Benjamin. But Jacob not only sends Benjamin, he sends with the other sons money and gifts. Interestingly, he sends the same gifts that the Ishmaelites carried to Egypt in verse in Genesis 37. Balm, gum, and myrrh. I don't know why that's there. They Egyptians must have loved gum. But not only does, does Jacob send the brother and his gifts, but he sends his sons off, more importantly, with a benediction. Look at verse 14. May God Almighty grant you peace. Mercy before the man. That is to say, may El Shaddai, the God Almighty, have compassion on you. Uh, that name of God, El Shaddai, speaks of God as the all-powerful one, as the all-sufficient one, as the one who is sovereign over all. As El Shaddai, God is the one who therefore nourishes, who supplies, who protects, who, who satisfies in fact, Louis Burke of points out in, in, the, in the Bible, it is not just God as one who is to be feared as El Shaddai, but as El Shaddai, He is the source of blessing, of comfort. Now that's something that, that the brothers didn't experience. Uh, you remember in Genesis 42, 28, where, where they asked in terror, what is this that God has done? They, they only feared God. Yet now Jacob points him to the fact that God is not just to be feared, he's to be trusted. He's to be trusted as a God of mercy, a God who supplies in your need, a God of compassion. Jacob is in a sense saying this, despite all the money that you're carrying, despite the plans you're making, despite the gifts you have, you fundamentally need God Almighty to carry you. You need the God of might and mercy to be with you. And understanding that dynamic is vital to killing envy. At the heart of envy is discontentment. At the heart of envy, at its core, it complains about insufficiency. Uh, Epstein rightly points out that envy asks one leading question. What about me? 
What about me? Why does he or she have beauty, talents, wealth, power, the world's love, and other gifts, or at any rate, a larger share of them than I? Why not me? Well, here God through Jacob is reminding them and us that in our insufficiency, in our apparent misplaced discontentment, God Almighty is our sufficiency. He is enough. Despite his fears and his plans, Jacob is teaching his sons and us to look to God. To look to the God who is supremely sufficient in all things. When we ask that question, why not me? Why am I not getting all the blessings of others? That's a result of not seeing the God of might and mercy. Or to say it another way, if you do not have this God with you, this almighty El Shaddai, this one who is sufficient and powerful in all things, if you do not have Him with you, all your money, all your gifts, all your plans are insufficient. See, what matters at the end of the day, despite everything else, is having God. Uh, David, when he was at his best, understood this. Psalm 16, 1 to 2. I feel like I constantly quote this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. See, these brothers see a God who is mighty and merciful. And I believe God is even through that knowledge. He's, he's chipping away at that envious heart. Secondly, I want you to see that they come to see and come to hear the God of all peace. They come to see and hear the God of all peace. In verse 15 to 25, the brothers come to, to see God already granting them mercy. They arrive and they see God's might and mercy fulfilled right in front of them. They arrive in Egypt and they meet Joseph and almost immediately they, they send to Joseph's house. And obviously they're quite fearful. They're so fearful that verse 18, they're afraid of being assaulted, enslaved, and having their donkeys taken. They're very afraid. And yet in that fear, they're met not with judgment, but again, another benediction. This time from a pagan. A pagan servant from an apparent pagan governor. Verse 23, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has put treasure in your sacks for you. I have received your money. Can, can, can you imagine their response? Can you imagine how awestruck they must have been? The, the God of our father? The, the, the father who just announced God's blessing upon us? That father? That God? See, see these brothers at this point must have come to realize that indeed... God is almighty. Indeed, He is mighty and merciful. He is actually enough. See, this incident teaches these men and us that in our fear, God is our peace. And you no doubt know that that word peace, there's the Hebrew word shalom. It means throughout the Bible, wholeness, well-being, security, harmony. And throughout the Bible, it's something that God gives 
Isaiah 54 verse 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being. I give peace. I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. See, see these brothers are being taught that, that God is not only sovereign, He's not only sufficient, He is their shalom. He is their well-being. He and He alone can make them all. He and He alone can grant them peace. In their fear, in the sense of their inadequacy, He is the one who is sufficient. He can give them peace. Now, how does that address envy? Well, if envy is a sinful desire for the wrong object, then the way to kill envy is to set your desires on the right object. You set your desires on the God of peace, the God who makes whole. As you know, Asaph in Psalm 73 struggled with envy. In verse 3 he says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And how did Asaph deal with his envy? Well, firstly, he realized that the wicked have no peace. He realized that their end will perish. They will be destroyed under God's wrath. But secondly, he came to see that God is his peace. He came to see God as a satisfying portion in the immortal words of verse 25 and 26. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Dear friends, in our lack, in our fear, it should be enough that God is ours. I think it was Thomas Brooks who said, He that hath the one who hath all, hath all. If that makes any sense. God is the good behind every good. If you have Him, you have enough. Because He's a satisfying portion. And so that's what these brothers hear and see. Thirdly, I want you to see that they come to see the God of all grace. Uh, the God of all grace, verse 26 to 34, we find the brothers in Joseph's house. And it appears they're overwhelmed with gratitude because they throw themselves before Joseph. They, they present the gifts they brought along. And in response, Joseph shows them compassion. He, he asks them how they're doing. He asks if their bro brother is or if their father is alive. And at that point, Joseph himself announces a benediction. Verse 29, God, be gracious to you, my son. And now his emotions are so overwhelmed that he has to hide himself and weep again. And after composing himself, he, he prepares a bountiful lunch for his brothers. And, and to their amazement, he sets them all in order. Now they all probably look more or less the same age, yet he sets them all in order. And they feast one with another. In fact, the ESV footnote says they got intoxicated. The idea is this. These brothers, who were once marked by envy and enemies of one another, now find joy in one another. They delight in one another. This is a stark contrast to Genesis 37. When Joseph was shown favor, the family erupted with jealous anger. Yet now Benjamin is shown favor, and this family is 
united. They rejoice in one another. They feast merrily together. Did you see what God is able to do? Make no mistake, make no mistake about it. These are still evil men. They're still guilty. They've committed evil. Yet God shows them mercy. God has provided for them peace. And although the benediction is announced on Benjamin, they are tasting its benefits. They are tasting and seeing that the Lord is good at this very moment. And here's the lesson I think they learned and the lesson I think we need to learn. Let us not become resentful when others receive more. No, let us rather rejoice that we receive any. That these brothers deserve nothing. We in our sin deserve nothing. Yet like these brothers, we get to feast at the table of God's grace. See, regardless of whether we receive a lot or little, we are all recipients of grace. Free, unmerited, overwhelming grace. And therefore, why be envious? Uh, let's not forget these verses. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? This is John the Baptist in... I've gone way too far now. Uh, John the Baptist, John 3, 27. A person can receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Or James 1.17, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. See, dear friends, that's your ammunition against envy. Those verses remind us that we serve a God of all grace, who lavishes all of us with grace upon grace. Uh, one author has said it this way, envy is counting the other person's blessings instead of your own. Well, dear friends, these verses teach us that we need to start counting our blessings. You know that old Sunday school song? I don't think it's old. Old Sunday school song. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count all your blessings. See what God has done. That's how we fight against this leprous envy. I think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I love what one author says of this. He says, grace is what defines us. Grace is what forms and fills us. Grace is what makes us who and what we are. You don't need all those things that others have because you have grace. You have God. Dear friends, do you see what kills envy? Realize at its core, the problem of envy is fundamentally theological. Envy, covetousness, jealousy, those kissing cousins are all theological problems. There are sinful desires that have become discontent with God. There are sinful desires that have looked at what others have and have failed to see God. And therefore, they've missed the fact that God is mighty and in control and merciful. They've missed the fact that God is the source of our peace. And they've missed the fact that God is gracious to all. See, the problem of envy is theological, and our passage teaches us the solution is theological. 
to not fall into sinful discontent, to chase away these kissing cousins, to overcome the wolf-riding, poison-spewing leper of envy, you need to return to God. You just see Him. You look to Him. You major on His might and mercy. You pursue His peace in your anxiety. And you grow in the awareness of His overabundant grace. Uh, Brian Hedges was right when he gave this helpful summary. He says, the most effective medicine for envy is the, spear, is the pure spiritual milk of God's goodness. And he gets that from 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2 tells us, put away malice, put away hypocrisy, deceit, and envy, and like newborn infants, desire spiritual milk, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. See, the solution to envy, the solution to that malicious gaze and look, is to look at the joyful God instead. Uh, young people, youth, do you get upset if friends get better things than you? Do you get depressed because you're not as popular? Do you become discontent because you're not the best at something? Or, or perhaps singles here this evening, do you resent friends who get hitched or engaged or married? Maybe I'm done. Don't do that hitch thing. Do you complain to God for not giving you your heart's desires, a companion? Do you struggle with feeling guilty and, or critical or judgmental of others? Uh, prof professionals, do you find it difficult to celebrate the blessings of others? Do you get upset when others advance in their career and their social standing? Do you feel secretly pleased when they experience setbacks? Parents, you're not off the hook either. Do you begrudge other parents because their kids seem to excel? Do you give in to self-pity because your home isn't as nice or as tidy as others? Do you grumble because others seem to have life easy? Fellow elders, pastors, leaders, you're also not off the hook. Do you gossip about others despite secretly desiring their success? Do you live and minister if as if competing with others in the church? Do you get proud and boastful when God allows you to taste some success? Realize no matter who you are, no matter where you're at, no matter what your, your envy looks like, there is only one remedy, and that is the living God. I don't think it's a mistake that verse 14, 23, and 29 are benedictions. They are declarations of blessing founded upon God's character. And through these benedictions, we are meant to see that God, the true God, the one true living God, is a God of blessing. Contrary to what the snakes teach, God is not some prudish being who withholds good from you. No, He's a God who overflows with goodness, who blesses with mercy and peace and grace. And dear friends, dear beloved of God, where does He show us the greatest display of that blessing? Oh, you know where I'm pointing to. It's Christ. It's the cross. 
Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be God, blessed be God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Since Jesus, there is the blessing of grace because in grace He dies for us. He sheds His blood to forgive our sin. He gives His life to conquer our enemies. He dies to cleanse us of that pitiful snake of envy, crushing its head. In Jesus, there is the blessing of peace. He reconciles us to God. He makes us acceptable. He clothes us with, with righteousness. And every good gift, actually, adopts us into the family of God, gives us an eternal inheritance. He gives us blessing, the blessing of peace. And in Him, there is the blessing of mercy because He not only dies, He lives and He intercedes and He mightily works all things for our good and he's working toward clothing us ultimately with glory when he returns dear, dear friends when those kissing cousins come past to tempt you look to Christ look with a steady eye of faith knowing that in Jesus you have every spiritual blessing in Jesus you have every good gift knowing that without Christ all things or better loss. May we vanquish then that wolf riding, poison spewing leper of envy by looking and gazing upon the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening thankful that you are our God that we can call out with faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and own you as our Father, our Father who has blessed us in Jesus. And yet, Lord, as we come this evening with joyful hearts, thankful for the blessings we have, we want to ask that you forgive us for the many times we get discontent. The many times we covet what others have, we become envious, we become jealous. We lose sight of what we have in you because we've been so preoccupied with what others have. But you Lord, forgive us, help us, renew in us again this greater delight in you and satisfy our hearts in you. We ask this again. Because you are good and gracious and you've given us these portions of scripture to show us again uh, that you are the almighty God of mercy. You are the God of peace. You're the God of all grace. And to you belong all the glory. In Christ's name, amen.